Thanks for listening to the Rock Hill Podcast. At Rock Hill, we're all about reaching people with the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. Listen in as Pastor Matt Chappell teaches how God's Word applies to our everyday lives. Thank you so much for being here. It's going to be a great day. Is anybody ready to get into God's Word today? Looking forward to what God is going to teach us. Thank you, worship team, for leading us uh, this morning in worship. And uh, you can go ahead and find a seat this morning. And if you have a Bible today, you can go ahead and grab it. And uh, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther chapter number two this morning. And this morning, I'm not going to have my usual TV next to me this morning. And so you're going to have to actually crack open a Bible today. So I want to encourage you to grab a Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, pull it up on your phone and uh, just type in Google Esther chapter 2 and uh, bring it up so you can follow along this morning. And we started a, a series last week that we're calling Where is God? And the reason we're calling this series Where is God is because we're studying the book of Esther in the Old Testament. And in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned one time. And as you read the events, you wonder, is God absent? What is God doing? Where is God during these difficult times? And I, I feel like the book of Esther is very relatable because as we look around at our culture today and we look at our nation, sometimes we wonder, where is God? And when difficult things are happening, where is God in my circumstance? And where, where is God when things seem to be falling apart? But even when we can't always see it, God is working behind the scenes. And uh, throughout the book of Esther, we're highlighting the sovereignty of God and uh, learning that God is always in control. And last week, we started uh, week number one of this new series, and uh, I brought a message called uh, Victory Through Vacancy. And uh, sometimes God will use a vacancy in our lives to bring about a victory. Sometimes when there's emptiness or something seems missing, God's going to use that emptiness to bring about his ultimate purpose. And uh, we learned that last week because uh, King Xerxes, the Persian king, he was uh, kind of having a, a drunken, wild party, and he calls his uh, wife in, Vashti, the queen, and he uh, wants her to come and kind of parade before his drunken buddies inappropriately, and she refuses to do so. He gets upset, and so he banishes her uh, from his presence. And so now there is no queen in Persia. And so as we approach chapter number two, we have to understand that there is still a vacancy. Uh, but God is about to, to usher in something new. And this morning, I want to bring a message that I'm calling Controlled Chaos. Controlled Chaos. Esther chapter number two. If you're ready, would you say amen? amen. Let's start reading in verse number one of Esther chapter number two. The Bible says this, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace to the house of the women unto the custody of Hege the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their, things, uh, let their things for purification be given them. Verse number four. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, 
in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Everybody say Mordecai. Mordecai. The son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with uh, Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. Everybody say Esther. His uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her uh, for his own daughter. Verse number eight. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. Let's have a word of prayer together this morning. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've given us, and God, thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you today. God, I pray that you would uh, fill this place today with your, with your presence and with your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that you would fill me with your Spirit, Lord. Give me the words to say that would be beneficial for us this morning. God, I pray that we can look to Esther chapter number 2 and see these chaotic events that are unfolding and understand that you are ultimately in control even when it seems like things are spiraling out of control god you are sovereign uh, through it all god i pray that we could be encouraged today god i pray that we would be uh, motivated to go and to trust you and to do more for you lord we love you in jesus name and everybody said Several years ago, I was leading a mission trip in Costa Rica, and uh, we had a good group with us, and we were getting ready to do some serious missions work. And so one day I said, all right, we got to get ready to go and, and do some serious missions work, and so wear your swim shorts because we're going to go river rafting. And so that was kind of on the agenda for our trip uh, to go river rafting. How many of you have ever gone whitewater river rafting before? Anybody like that? And uh, we were getting ready to go, and uh, we were kind of in the staging area. We had our life jackets on. We had our uh, helmets on, getting ready to go, when, when seem seemingly out of nowhere, this torrential down pour just started on us. It started raining like crazy. It was thundering. Uh, there was lightning. It was kind of scary. We're standing there by the river, and I'm like, I don't, there's no way that we're going to go still. Like, we can't possibly still go and get into the river. And so I went, and I asked the guide. I was like, you know, are we, are we still going to go? And he was like, yes, of course. And I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, I'm ready. And so I went back over to the group. I'm like, all right, we're still going. And, and I was kind of nervous. Like, I can't believe we're doing this. They said it was like category four or five or something, like with the rapids. And I was like, you know, this is the last thing that I need, a youth pastor, and we're going down the river and someone falls out and I'm, I'm accountable for all these people and literally there was a lady in our group that that started to cry and she refused to get into the raft and so she went back up into the building and she did not go down the river but the rest of us uh, we, we tried to uh, be as brave as possible we went down we got in the river and got in the raft and we started going down and we were spiraling out of control everywhere and we were hitting these big dips and the, uh, getting soaking uh, wet water splashing all over us we were hitting bumping into rocks and just kind of spinning out of control and I was nervous for those first few minutes and I kept I'm looking at our guide, and he's just smiling, just having a great time, and uh, uh, I was so nervous, like holding on as tight as I could, and I looked back at him, and he was just like calm, cool, collected, and uh, the reality is, as he had done that hundreds of times before, and he knew exactly where we were going, and he knew exactly what to push us off of, and where uh, the biggest rapids were, and, and he was very familiar with the whole setting, and so while I was nervous, and while it seemed like we were just spiraling out of control, and the whole scene was chaotic for me, he was very much in control, and as you study the word of God, the more often uh, you look into scripture, you see that even when circumstances in our lives are 
spiraling out of control. God is still in control. And even when it seems like things don't make sense and it seems like things are getting dangerous and things are getting out of control, I just want to remind you that there is not one minute of your life where God is not completely in control. He is completely sovereign. He is king of kings, Lord of lords, reigning over all. And the Bible tells us uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter number 29, David was so excited about this, this thought that, that God was reigning over all and that God is, is the supreme ruler of the universe. And David said this in 1 Chronicles 29, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Those are a lot of things that belong to God. And David said, Thine is the glory and the power and the victory and the majesty. For all uh, that is in the heaven and that is in earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Everybody say all. Both riches and honor come of thee. And watch this. And thou reignest over all all. As a king, he, he rules over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. And so God is not only uh, the sovereign uh, creator of the universe, but he is in sovereign control over the universe. He is reigning over all. Now, in the New Testament, religious rulers were upset at Jesus one day because he was working on the Sabbath, and Jesus uh, responds with this powerful response that teaches us a little bit about God's sovereignty. In John chapter 5, verse number 17, it says this, but but Jesus answered them, those religious leaders. He said, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. He says, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. And I love, I love that word worketh, that, that, that word, because it's the Greek word ergazomai, and it's, it's, it's tense carries the idea of continuation. And so what he's saying is that my God is working, and he is always working. He's not planning on stopping anytime soon. He, he, he's continuing, uh, continuing to work. And I just want to tell you this morning, hey, there is no Sabbath when it comes to God's sovereignty. There is no Sabbath when it comes to God's strength. There is no Sabbath when it comes to God's power. He, he never stops working. He never stops ruling. He never stops working behind the scenes in, in our lives. And so that is the truth that we must remember as we come to the book of Esther. Sometimes it seems like things are spiraling out of control. Sometimes life can be chaotic and we're wondering what's going on. But we have to remember that God has a different paradigm. He has a different perspective. He is not obligated to work in the context of our finite understanding. And God can do things that we do not understand. And God God is doing things behind the scenes. I love what Isaiah 55 says. For my thoughts, uh, God is saying, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. How many of you like to plan? Uh, you like to uh, plan ahead and, and, and organize things. You know, we have good plans and we have things that we want to do. And, and God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we come to uh, Esther chapter number two this morning, and uh, we, we learned last week about the Persian king Xerxes, and he threw, a, he threw a, a pretty big party. If you remember, the party lasted six months. And so he was, he was just uh, uh, drinking, carrying on, having all the pleasures that this life has to offer, and uh, the party kind of escalated, and he, he calls his wife in, Vashti, and, and uh, kind of an inappropriate scene, calls her to come in and parade before the man, and she refuses. He gets upset, and so he banishes her. He makes this whole new law of the Medes and Persians that, that no women uh, can ever question the authority of a man. And so this was kind of just this, 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 this unbelievable scene that's taking place, and it's kind of uh, chaotic. But then in chapter number Number two, it gets even worse. And uh, you thought that six months of partying and immorality and sexual sin uh, was bad enough. But then we come to chapter two and it gets worse. And I think it's through this passage this morning, through Esther chapter number two, that we learn some principles that can help us navigate the chaos. 
And as we take a step back and as we examine chapter number two, and it seems like, man, God is absent. Things are out of control. But as you take a closer look, we can see God working behind the scenes. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give us four principles that can help us navigate the chaos. Are you ready this morning? Four principles that can help us navigate the chaos. Number one, we have to understand this. Remorse is an inadequate replacement for repentance. Remorse is an inadequate replacement for repentance. If you have a Bible or you have an app on your phone, look at verse number one. It says this, after these things, after what things, what is taking place here? Between chapters one and chapters two, there's about a four-year gap, okay? And in chapter number one, Xerxes was in the third year of his reign. In chapter number two, Xerxes was in the seventh year of his reign. So we have about a four-year gap. What took place during those four years? Well, history tells us, specifically the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Xerxes wanted to take over the known world. And to do that, he had to go and attack Greece. And so he went and he attacked Greece and the Greeks, and he lost miserably. I did not recommend it, but this is what the movie uh, 300 is about, this battle. And uh, he goes and he, he attacks uh, the Greeks. He, he loses. And uh, so he comes back to Shushan. He comes back to Susa in Persia, and he is upset. And uh, he is down in the dumps. He just went, and he is not returning with the thrill of victory. He is returning uh, with the agony of defeat. And so he comes back in verse number one after these things, after that battle, after four years had passed, when the wrath of the king Ahasuerus was appeased. And so he had some, some time to kind of cool off a little bit. And you remember last week, he was uh, very angry. He was upset. And so he calms down a little bit. He sobers up a little bit from his drunken six-month party. He comes back from war, and it says this, and he remembered. Everybody say remembered. remembered. He remembered. Who do you remember? Vashti. And what she had done and what was decreed against her. And so now he's had some time to think about this. And now he's had some time to kind of uh, look back and remember those things that were done to Vashti. And now we see that Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is experiencing a little bit of remorse. And now he kind of feels bad and is like, man, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Maybe we shouldn't have banished Vashti, Vashti, but there's nothing that I can do now. And now he's kind of starting to feel this regret and this remorse about his decision. And it's interesting that verse number one says uh, what was decreed against her. He remembered what was decreed against her, but Ahasuerus needs to remember that he's the one that signed the decree. And so often we make decisions, we start to experience the consequences for our decisions, and then we begin to regret and experience remorse, but we have to remember we're the ones that made the decision. And so he responds with remorse, but he does not respond with repentance. And I want to tell you this morning that there is a major difference between remorse and repentance. Because a lot of times we feel bad about the things that we do, but we never uh, change direction. We, we never uh, decide uh, to do something about the decisions that we've made. And so there's a major difference between remorse and repentance. Xerxes is, is experiencing uh, remorse uh, here uh, in, this, uh, in this verse. Revelation chapter number 2, verse number 5 says this. Remember, therefore, uh, this is a letter uh, to the church at Ephesus uh, from Jesus in Revelation. Revelation 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Everybody say repent. Repent and do the first works, or else I come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And so to repent means to change one's mind, to go a different direction. Our Erdman's Bible Dictionary uh, says uh, this definition on repentance. In its fullest sense, it is a term for a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. Many times when we do wrong, we respond with regret and remorse. When we should respond 
with repentance and responsibility and say, you know, I, I made that decision. Okay, I need to turn and correct course. And I just want to encourage you this morning, if you are experiencing some sort of uh, conviction in your life, the Holy Spirit is convicting you. Recognize uh, conviction for what it is. Conviction is a gift. Conviction is an opportunity to correct course. Conviction is God's way of saying, hey, you need to repent. You need to make this right and get back on the path that I have for you. And what we see here in verse number one is Xerxes feels bad. He has remorse. He's regretting the decision that he made, but he does not turn that remorse into repentance. And so what happens is he makes matters worse. And what happens is when we replace repentance with remorse, what happens? We make matters worse. Uh, we, we expand the chaos that's in our lives. And what we see uh, beginning to unfold in chapter number two is, is the scene becomes far more chaotic. Why? Because uh, he responded with remorse rather than repentance. Notice uh, what happens in verse number uh, two. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Verse number two says this. Here, here, not only we see remorse, but now we see a remedy. And so uh, 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 Xerxes has some rulers and leaders, and, he, and they say, hey, we got an idea. Let's remedy uh, King Xerxes because he's kind of sad right now, and, you know, uh, he, he's not super happy. So let's help him. Verse number two. Then said the king's servants that, uh, that ministered unto him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. They say, we got an idea. Xerxes, he loves pleasure. He loves women, and so let's provide all the women that he wants. Let's go uh, to all the lands, and let's seek out the virgins, the young ladies, all 127 provinces that Xerxes was ruling at the time. Let's go and take these ladies, these women from their homes, from their families, and let's bring them and offer them to Xerxes. Verse number three, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan, the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hege, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let the things for purification be given them. We'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. Verse number four, and let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. And so really this was, uh, this was an evil scene. This was an immoral remedy. They say, you know what, Xerxes is kind of sad, so let's get all the young virgins, let's get all the young ladies of all 127 provinces, let's have them come in, let's have them get beautified, let's have them go through this purification process, and every night for years, some commentators say, every night for years, uh, King Xerxes will have a new woman at his uh, pleasure, at his disposal, and whoever he likes the best, they'll become queen. How many of you think that sounds like a good idea? This was essentially uh, the bachelor in Persia, but far more degenerate. This was a wicked scene. This was an evil idea. And all of this chaos ensued because Xerxes had a little bit of remorse, but he didn't say, you know what, I was wrong. I need to repent before God and get back on track. And so what he does instead is he pursues more pleasure so he can uh, subdue that remorse and matters got worse. By the way, the sexual immorality that was so rampant in Persia is not too dissimilar to what is taking place today in the United States and around our world. Sex trafficking is a $32 billion industry. According to Forbes magazine, human trafficking is the world's fastest growing crime. And, and the Bible tells us that we shouldn't be surprised by all this. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, Xerxes, Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, uh, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, watch this, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Is not that where we are today? Where we love pleasure often more than God. 
And so we see Xerxes in this scene is getting out of control. And oftentimes when we look at our world and we hear statistics about sex trafficking and we hear uh, all of the, the wickedness that is running rampant in our world and society and we can get easily discouraged and we can get depressed and think, man, things are out of control. Is it even worth trying? I don't even want to raise kids in this next generation because I don't know what it's going to look like. And this is just getting out of control. This is bad. This is sad. This is scary. But I want to remind you that Jesus said, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And I just want to remind you that even in the midst of chaos, we are commanded to be of good cheer because God is still in control. Even in the chaos, even in the wickedness, God is still working. Even when things seem chaotic and evil, God says, I'm in control and you can still trust me. And so God is still at work behind the scenes. And all of this ensued because Xerxes decided to replace repentance with remorse. That's principle number one. Principle number two is this this morning. Number two, spiritual complacency is a subtle compromise. Spiritual complacency is a subtle compromise. If you're with me still, would you say amen? amen? Now, at this point in the story, we're introduced to new characters in the book of Esther. In fact, we are introduced to the primary characters of the book of Esther. We're introduced to Mordecai and Esther. I mean, if you have your Bible, I want you to see a couple of things about them. I want you to see, first of all, their, their, their compromise. And uh, they had this compromise. Notice verse number 5. It says this, now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew. Okay, very important is nationality. He was a Jew. A certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which uh, had been carried away from Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And so we're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jew. He was one of the uh, Jewish uh, people that was taken in uh, Babylonian captivity or his ancestors were taken in Babylonian captivity and now he's here in Persia. And we're introduced to Mordecai and he has this, this uh, Persian name or actually this Babylonian name. Uh, it's named after the Babylonian god Marduk. And so we have this Jewish man with a Babylonian name after a false god. That's not the best name for a Jewish man. That would be like a follower of Jesus today or a Christian today being named Buddha. Uh, it just, it, it's not going to mix. It's probably not the best idea. And so uh, here we have Mordecai, and he's named after this false Babylonian god. And why does he have this name, and what is he doing here in Persia? Well, we have to understand uh, contextually in Ezra chapter number 1, verse number 2 says this. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, before Xerxes came along, there was Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Uh, who is there among uh, uh, you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem. And so when Cyrus the king uh, uh, took over Babylon, and when he captured Babylon, he actually set the Jewish people free. We talked about that last week. And so now they are actually free uh, Mordecai and his ancestors, they are free to go back to Jerusalem and build the temple and restart and rebuild this nation. In fact, not only were they free to do so, uh, it was God's will for them to do so. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter number 29, God's prophet at this time was saying, For thus saith the Lord, verse number 10, that after 70 years uh, be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and I will perform my good word towards you and causing you to return to this place. And so not only were they free to go back to Jerusalem, it was God's will for them to go back to Jerusalem. And where do we find Mordecai? Persia. Mordecai was content to be in Persia. What we find here is spiritual complacency. Mordecai and 
other unnumbered Jews, they chose to remain back. Life was a little bit easier in Persia. There was opportunity in Persia. Uh, the Persians were not uh, as hostile towards uh, other nations as, as, as some leaders were. And so they had opportunity there in Persia. And then we're introduced to uh, Esther in verse number 7. And he brought up Hadassah. Uh, that is her Hebrew name. And, and uh, that is Esther, that is her Persian name, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took her, uh, took for his own daughter. And so we, we meet here Esther. Esther was an orphan. Uh, she did not have her father and mother. They both passed away. Her, her presumably older cousin, Mordecai, uh, decided to take under his wing, and he kind of raised her and took care of her. And so here we have Mordecai and Esther. And it's interesting in all the book of Esther, uh, uh, there is only one person that is introduced with two names, and that is Esther. Uh, uh, Hadassah, her Hebrew name meaning myrtle or, or flower, and then uh, Esther, uh, meaning star, uh, perhaps named after the Persian goddess uh, Ishtar. And so uh, we meet Hadassah and Esther, and many commentators say the reason why two names are introduced is because it's symbolic of a woman trying to live in two different worlds. Hadassah is a Hebrew girl who knows about Yahweh, the one true God. Esther is a beautiful girl that's just trying to make it in Persia, just trying to live her life. And so we meet Mordecai and Esther, and they're both living in Persia. Are they wicked, evil people? No. Are they living for God? No. It's kind of like, are are you an atheist? No, I'm not an atheist. Are you living for Jesus? Not really. That's where Mordecai and Esther are. They are living in spiritual complacency, and so many people today, they say, yeah, I believe God, and I know who God is, but are you living for Jesus? Are you actively serving him? Well, not really. See, spiritual complacency is a subtle compromise. It's, hey, I'm just here. I'm just in Persia. I'm just kind of uh, doing my thing. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to take care of myself. A lot has gone against me. I'm a captive. I'm in a foreign land. Not much is expected of me, but here we see that they had this subtle compromise, and it even uh, takes a step further because not only was there a compromise in verse number 10, if you skip down a couple verses in verse 10, there was also a concealment. Notice what it says in verse number 10. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred. What does that mean? She, she didn't tell anyone that she was a Jewish girl. She, she concealed that. Why? Why? Because Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Mordecai said, hey, don't tell anyone that you're a Jewish girl. Now, why did he do that? Perhaps it was for protection. Perhaps it was for promotion. But either way, they concealed their Jewish identity. And this became problematic for a Jewish uh, girl and a Jewish man because they were supposed to adhere to the Old Testament law of Moses. That there were certain things that you should eat. There were certain things that you should do as a Jewish person. Now, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the Old Testament law, and he freed us from these things. But at this time, uh, they were supposed to still adhere to the Old Testament uh, Jewish law. Now, you might be thinking, well, really, is that that big of a deal at this time? Like, really, they got taken captive, and they're, they're living in this uh, foreign land. Can we really expect them to adhere to the Old Testament law? That's exactly what Daniel did. Daniel was taken in captivity in Daniel chapter number 1. He was taken in Babylonian captivity. It says this in Daniel chapter 1, verse number 8. But Daniel purposed, everybody say purposed. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And I believe today with all my heart that we need more followers of Jesus that would say, I don't care how bad the culture gets. I don't care how wicked it gets around me. I'm going to purpose in my heart. I'm going to develop some convictions in my life that I'm not going to budge on. I'm going to pursue my calling. I'm going to live for Jesus no matter the cost, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And so what we see here is compromise, and then we see concealment. Uh, I believe in God, just don't tell anybody. 
They're content to live in Persia. Many, many Christians today uh, are, are, are wanting to hide their faith and wanting to, wanting to kind of conceal their faith. I just don't want everyone to know because they might think that I'm weird. And I don't want everyone to know because I, I don't know what they're going to say. And so there was this compromise, then there was this concealment. But, but here's what's so fascinating about the book of Esther. Are you still with me? What's interesting is God is still orchestrating events, and God still wants to use Mordecai and Esther. He says, that's who I want to use, even in their complacency. No, in fact, notice verse number 8. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house. And so Esther was one of those young virgins that was taken away and brought into the palace in order to simply please the pleasures of this wicked king. And so Esther is taken also into the king's house for the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. Watch this, verse number 9. And the maiden pleased him. Haggai is like, I kind of like this girl. She's different. And she obtained kindness of him. And so he speedily gave her things for the purification uh, with such things as belonged to her and seven maidens which were meet uh, to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. And so what we see is she obtained kindness from this man. She also was preferred uh, of him. And then in verse number 15, if you skip ahead, uh, down at the end of verse number 15, it says, And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. And so what are we learning? Okay, she's obtaining favor. Uh, we, we see uh, in verse number 17, the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor. And so here's what we see. It seems like there's these just uh, too many coincidences. It's like, man, everybody that Esther comes across, they like her. They notice something's different, so they promote her. They advance her. And even when she comes before the king, he's, he shows her grace and favor. And what seems like a coincidence is actually divine providence. God is actually working behind the scenes, and he's saying, you know what? I need someone down the road. They don't know it yet, but I need someone to deliver my people, and I think Esther's the person to do it, and so I'm going to advance her. I'm going to put my hand on her life, even when she was in complacency. And see, that is the story of the Bible, that God uses imperfect people for his perfect plan. That was the story of Abraham when he lied about his wife. That was the story about David when he committed adultery, when he murdered someone. That was the story of Moses when he murdered a man. Uh, that was the story of Peter when he denied Christ three times. That was the story of Paul when he persecuted the church. And I want to tell you today, that can be your story as well, that even though you have a broken past and even though you're not perfect, God says, guess what? I still want to use you for my glory. I still want to do something special in your life. See, God is not looking for a perfect servant. He already sent one. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you look to him and cling to him, he will take care of all of your paths. And so we see Mordecai and Esther, uh, they're living in complacency, spiritual compromise. They're just kind of going along to get along. They're not doing anything terrible, but they're not really standing up for God. They're not standing up for what they believe. And God says, I'm still going to use them. And see, when you understand God's grace, when you start to learn more about God's grace, God's grace does not keep you in complacency. God's grace will catapult you beyond complacency and bring you to a place of motivation where you want to do more for him and you've got to serve him more because he's been so good to us even when we don't deserve it. And so we meet Mordecai and Esther. They're living in complacency and this gives us great hope today because God can use imperfect people for his perfect plan because of his amazing grace. Here's a third principle this morning. Are you ready? Yeah. Number three, God is far more concerned with the internal than the external. Now, Esther gets taken into this terrible contest, right? She's one of the virgins that's brought into the, <coughs> excuse me, Shushan Palace. 
and uh, she's taken before the king. And they go through this beautification process. If you'll notice verse number 11. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. Mordecai cared about Esther. Mordecai loved Esther. And so every day he would go and he would check on Esther and he would see how are things going. Verse number 12. Now when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after that she had been, watch this, 12 months. 12 months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished to wit six months with oil and of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and other things for the purification or the purifying of the women. And so for a whole year, these women went through this beautification process and they were getting anointed with perfumes and oils and uh, manicures and pedicures and makeup. And they're just going through this whole ritual for one night to please the king. Whatever is going to satisfy the king, they're training and indoctrinating these girls uh, to do that. And uh, there was this high emphasis on uh, the external. There was this high emphasis on, on beauty and what you uh, look like. And I was thinking this week, my youngest daughter, Blakely, she's two years old, and sometimes she'll sneak into our room, and she'll go to the bathroom, and she'll find her mom's makeup, and uh, she'll go in there, and uh, she'll just try to uh, put that makeup on, and, and uh, she'll, she'll put a, she loves to dress up, and she loves to uh, wear princess costumes, and she, the other day, we caught a picture of her, and she was, uh, she was putting some makeup on. And, uh, you know, pretty good. She kind of knew the general direction of where it was supposed to go. And uh, she loves uh, dressing up. She loves putting makeup on. She, she has a lot of fun doing that. But this whole process here in Esther chapter 2 is not something that any woman would want to be a part of. They, they, they had this high priority and emphasis on the external. You have to look perfect to come before the king. High emphasis on the external. But the truth is, is God is far less concerned with appearances than we are. And Persian culture is a lot like American culture because in American culture we say here's, here's what a woman should look like and here's what celebrity uh, and, and entertainment and culture, this is what you should look like. And if you don't look like this, then you have less value than someone that does. And there's this high priority and emphasis on what we look like in, in, in our outward appearance. Uh, one theologian, uh, Alistair Begg, he said this, God made you the way that you are. It is not the result of biological roulette. You do not look the way that you look on accident. God says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And in Persian culture, you had to look perfect to appear before the king. But God says, I am far more concerned with the heart. I am far more concerned with what's going on on the inside. And so often we get caught up in this comparison game. And what does that person look like? And I've got to look like that person. And, man, this is what... Uh, our culture is telling us to look like. And we get caught up in all of that. But comparison is the great enemy of contentment. And so we get lost in all of this and we focus on the external and God says, man, what's going on in the heart? I love what the Bible says in 1 Peter 3. It says, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair and wearing of the gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great Price. And so we see this culture is just indoctrinating these women and subjecting these women into something that uh, was immoral and ungodly. And uh, uh, God is saying, I'm so concerned with what's going on on the inside. And then we come to verse number 16, and it says this. Verse 16, so Esther was taken unto the king Ahasuerus into his house uh, royal in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign. So now it's Esther's turn. Esther's going to go and appear uh, before the king for her one night, verse 17. And the king loved Esther above all the women, 
And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And so here we see Esther is now queen. Esther won, but it was really a tragic victory. She won the competition, but it was really a tragedy because uh, everyone else uh, that lost, they would have to just go into a harem. They could never remarry. They could never establish a future, never uh, have a family of their own. They just had to live there forever. And if the king ever wanted them, they were summoned and they would go. And that's what they had to do. And so it was really a a terrible scene. But Esther wins now. And and God is using this to bring her into a position of uh, uh, prominence and he's he's bringing her into this high position because he has a plan that Esther is not fully aware of see sometimes God will lead us into a position he'll lead us into a new place but he won't fully reveal his plan and so Esther now is in this place and now she has this position of power and she's not exactly sure why Landon Doden one commentator said the girl who was adopted became the girl who was abducted who then became the girl that advanced in the harem and ultimately to be adorned with a crown and announced as queen uh, in a feast given just for her. And so uh, Xerxes, he picks Esther, he celebrates, and uh, they throw another big party. There's a lot of parties in the book of Esther. They throw a whole other feast, and they say, let's celebrate this. And, and uh, Esther uh, is now uh, the queen. And so this is a chaotic scene. And there's one more principle that, that we can learn this morning. Number four is this. God has a way of finding the forgotten. Number four, God has a way of finding the forgotten. Esther is now queen. God is using all of this chaos and all of this wickedness and evil to put Esther into a position of prominence so she can eventually deliver his people. And we learn that God has a way of uh, finding the forgotten. If you have one more point, would you say amen? amen? Verse number 21, it says this. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, Two of the king's chamberlains, Big Than and Teresh, these are not good guys, Big Than and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth, and they sought to lay hands on Ahasuerus. And so these two guys were a couple of guys up to no good, started making trouble in the neighborhood, got in one little fight. Okay, I'm done. These guys, they start to plan to assassinate King Xerxes. They were upset about something, maybe perhaps that he chose Esther to be queen. They're upset and they say, Let, let's, let's kill him. But watch this, verse number 22. And the thing was known to Mordecai. So, so Mordecai, I don't know, we don't know the circumstances, but somehow he finds out about this. He finds out these two guys, uh, Big Thin and Teresh, they're, they're planning on assassinating King Xerxes and Mordecai knows this. Now put yourself in Mordecai's position. Evil king, abusing women, leaving them in shame, living for only himself, and now there is a plot, there is an assassination that is unfolding right before his eyes, and he finds out about it, what would you do? Do you tell someone, do you stop it, or do you let it happen? You say, Xerxes is a terrible person. He's a wicked man. But do I stop this? Do I let it happen? The Bible tells us this in Romans chapter 12. Verse number 14, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend uh, to men of low estate. Be not uh, wise in your own conceit, in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. 
Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. I wondered this morning, when someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you, when someone belittles you, what is our response? Do we look to get even? Do we look to take vengeance? And, and man, Xerxes has what's coming to him. Or do we do the right thing? Do we demonstrate the love of Christ? Because here Mordecai, he finds out about this. And watch what he does in verse number 22. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther, the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. So he says, Esther, I just want you to know there is an assassination attempt on Xerxes. He needs to know about this. And so she goes and she warns him. And watch what happens in verse number 23. And when the inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. That means they, they looked into it. They went and, and they found these guys and they found, okay, they are trying to kill Xerxes. They found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. Uh, some translations say impaled on a stick. They were, they were killed for it. It was written in the book of Chronicles before the king. Now watch this. Mordecai just saved Xerxes' life, right? He just saved his life. Now you would expect if someone saves your life, you're going to be eternally grateful. If, someone come, if you just are drowning in the ocean and someone comes and saves your life, you're going to be pretty thankful for that person. So you would expect that Mordecai would get a promotion. You would expect that he would be honored. You would expect that something good would happen to Mordecai. And we do see a promotion, but it's not the promotion that we might expect. Because notice in chapter 3, verse number 1, it says this, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote, watch this, Haman. He promotes someone else. Mordecai's thinking, now's my chance. I've been, I've been good to the king. I just saved his life, and, and something good's going to happen. Now's my opportunity. Esther's the queen, and now I'm going to raise to a position of prominence, and here comes the promotion, and it's to Haman. And here Mordecai feels like, man, I'm forgotten. All, all they did, in fact, it tells us in verse number 23, is it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. He didn't get a prom promotion. He just got a notation. We'll just write it down. And so often in life, we are disappointed because our experience does not align with what we expected. And we expect to get some sort of promotion. We expect to do the right thing, and we're going to get rewarded. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to live for God, and something good's going to happen. And then we live for God, and we do the right thing, and nothing happens, and we're disappointed. Because we're watching somebody else get the promotion that we deserve. Because you should see how much I serve, and you should see how much I give, and you should see what I go through. They don't deserve the promotion. I deserve the promotion, and all I got was a notation in the book of Chronicles. But God would use that notation in Mordecai's life later on in the story to bring about his perfect plan. God says, hey, I know you just got a notation. It's not worth much now, but it's worth far more than your life. That notation is worth all of your people's lives. And so often we are looking for the reward, and God says, just be patient. Just trust my timing. The Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 13, verse number 21, evil pursueth sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. Good shall be repaid. Hey, God is sovereign. He sees everything. He beholds the evil and the good. Revelation 22:12 12 says, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work as it shall be. See, when Jesus returns, he's going to reward us at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to cast crowns at his feet. There is a reward coming, but it is required of a steward that a man be found faithful. We just got to keep on doing the right thing. We got to keep sowing the right seeds, even when we're not seeing the fruit, even when we're not seeing the reward. God says, just keep on being faithful and just keep on trusting my 
timing. And I want to close with, with these thoughts. Charles Spurgeon, he said this, From every town, village, and little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. And so from every text in Scripture, there's a road to the center of the Scriptures. So no matter where we are in Scripture, no matter where we are, Old Testament or New Testament, there is a road that is leading back to the center of the Scriptures. That is Christ. Because we believe in the centrality of Christ. And Christ is our life. And every Scripture points ahead to Christ. And so your business and my business is when you get to a text to say, Now, what is the road that leads to Christ? and then preach a sermon running along the road towards the great center, Christ. And so when we come to the book of Esther, yes, we can learn these principles, and yes, we can glean these truths, and yes, we can see that God is working behind the scenes, and yes, we learn about God's sovereignty, but how does this point us ahead to Christ? How does this point us ahead to Jesus? Because there is a road back to Jesus. And as you study the book of Esther, there are many comparisons and contrasts between, even, even contrast between King Xerxes and King Jesus. Because King Xerxes was looking to live a life of pleasure, but King Jesus was looking to lay his life down for others. King Xerxes left his women in shame, but King Jesus uh, frees us from shame, and he free, sets us free from guilt. And he says, I, I conquered sin, death, and the grave, but I also took care of your shame as well. And so King Xerxes, he was focused on himself. Jesus was focused on others. Xerxes said, hey, if you want to come to me, King Xerxes, if you want to come to me, you have to come in perfect condition. You have to take care of yourself for a whole year. You have to come to me with oil and perfume and makeup, and you have to be perfect. And guess what? King Jesus says, come to me just as you are. A lot of times we think, man, i got to clean my life up first, and i got to come to Jesus once I have it all together. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it is. Come right now just as you are. I have a spot for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. All you have to do is have a relationship with me. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we see King Xerxes is an imperfect savior. Esther is an imperfect redeemer. Even Mordecai couldn't do anything about this situation. Mordecai in verse number 11, every day he would go and he would check on Esther. Every day, are you doing okay? Are you doing okay? How's things going? He would check on Esther. But see, even Mordecai could never change her situation. But see, King Jesus can not only check on us, but he can change our situation. See, there is not only hope for a believer, but there is help for a believer. See, God can actually come into our lives and he can make us new and he can change our situation. He can transform us and out with the old and in with the new. And so Mordecai was an imperfect redeemer and all of this is pointing us ahead to one perfect savior. It's Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate redeemer. I love what 1 Timothy 4.10 says. I'll close with this verse. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust, watch this, in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Can I tell you something about Jesus? He is not just the Savior for one country. He is not just the Savior for one ethnic group. He is not just the Savior for one demographic. He is the Savior of all all men. And let me tell you what all means. All means all. It's everybody. The ground is level at the cross. And so today you can trust him. Today you can place your faith in him. Even when your circumstances are chaotic, they're out of your control, you can put your hands in the air and say, God, I trust that you're in control and you're working behind the scenes. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today. Thanks again for listening today. If this message was an encouragement to you, let us know. You can email us at hello at rockhill.church 
and keep up with all the latest news at rockhill.church or on Instagram at rockhillchurch.